All right, so we're joined here by uh, Catherine Tyndall today from uh, Dominion Enterprise, and I'm really excited to uh, to talk a little bit about. You know, I say I'm really excited because I actually really I do get I do get excited about talking about tax benefits and figuring out how we can benefit our businesses and you know utilize money and better advantages. And you know, I think for some people that might be a boring topic, but I'm actually excited about it. So welcome to the show today, Catherine. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I have to admit that I get a little bit excited talking about taxes too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so give us a you know give us a little bit of an elevator pitch, your background, um, you know maybe what got you excited to get into taxes to begin with, and then then we can really kind of get into the nitty gritty about the, you know some fun stuff. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background with tax it's kind of a roundabout story. So I million years ago, back when I was in school, um, I wanted to go into medicine because I had a really strong desire to have my work life be something that was helping people and serving people, but then also, you know, building a legacy for myself and my family. And I found as I got farther into that world, that just kind of the modern state of things and how uh, things were going just didn't um, align with that the way I wanted to. And so uh, it was funny, it was on an offhand suggestion from my parents who are both CPAs to take an accounting course. And so that's kind of how, you know, long story short, I'm here talking about taxes, but I found it's a really unique opportunity in the industry just because it's something that there's so much fear around taxation and there's so much confusion. And so it really does give me an opportunity to both help people um, and educate people and also help them build their legacies and, and really do something that's substantial and impactful for them because, you know, I'm sure as you've experienced tax is something that's a, becomes a major problem, the more enterprising and uh, entrepreneurial you get. So absolutely, that's a little bit about my background. So what you're saying is it's in your DNA, right? You, you just couldn't. Fight yeah, it. I guess I couldn't escape it. It was like my fate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, you know, now that you mentioned it, I mean, you know, without getting like too political, things are changing, right? I mean, the taxation, yeah. the climate, I mean, you know, and, and I know that you have a you have a, a big focus on real estate investors. A lot of our listeners mm -hmm. are in that space some way, shape or form. So, you know, what do you see as like, uh, you know, the top couple things that, you know, might be affecting us as real estate investors here in the near future? Yeah, I think, you know, most real estate investors that I talk to, part of the reason why they get into the space in the first place is because it is so tax advantaged. Um, it's one of the few areas and few lines of business where you really have a lot of control with how you're taxed because you have control over when you execute deals. Um, and then there's just a lot of benefits in the tax code for people involved in real estate because you're able to generate a positive cash flow a lot of the times without triggering a tax bill, you know, if you can time things correctly. And so I think with the recent legislation, um, we still don't have finalized legislation as of the time we're recording this, but the main things to take away is a lot of the areas that the new administration is interested in that maybe didn't make it into the tax bill are areas that they're going to be considering over you know, the next couple decades. Because I think a lot of the things we're seeing now were things that kind of started brewing under the Obama administration. And so a lot of these little thought patterns are going to are going to stay on. So certain things like increasing the capital gains tax rate, um, changing around the net investment income tax, really starting to target people who are in the higher higher income buckets and starting to go after some of these more tax advantaged um, deals that people have been able to do. So one of the things that's really common is, you know, the 1031 exchange was something that was almost on the chopping block. 
Um, and that's a really common, useful tool for people in real estate. So it's just good to know that some of these things they're being looked at and that they're, you know, under scrutiny, not that there's any big, big changes I see for, you know, kind of your average person involved in real estate for this year. But it's one of those things where you're going to have to be proactive about it and have a strategy around some of these things, because eventually, you know, as spending programs uh, are expanded, you know, we see like more credits are going out to different people and just there's more government spending going on that's going to have to be paid for somewhere. And um, nobody gets reelected by, you know, um, it's much easier to get reelected when you when your pitch is that you're going to be taxing higher higher earning people, and so for a lot of people in real estate, they'll end up getting kind of swept up in that. Um, so it, that those are the areas of concern, I think. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree, and and I, I think a lot of it is talk. I think a lot of it is talk for a purpose, but you know, to the point that I think we have to pay attention to it, and you know, mm-hmm. we have to start to. Um, to voice our opinions as well, to, uh, to continue to protect those rights. Um, because it is going to, it is going to potentially have sweeping change, um, you know, to our, to our fellow investors in our industry. If, uh, if that's, if that stuff changed, can you imagine a 1031 going away? Can you imagine what no. that alone would do to yeah. real estate investors? No, it's just, and some of the moves too, like one of the ones that was a common one. And a lot of people have this, this as a strategy is, um, if you own property, when you pass away, that property, instead of its tax basis being at what you bought it for, it gets a step up. And so it goes to fair market value. And so that's a way for you to be able to pass on. If you, you know, you plan things correctly, you pass on property without triggering a capital gains tax to, um, you know, your next of kin who inherit it. And that's, you know, estate taxes are a completely other ballpark, but at least that part of it, you know, a lot of people rely on that strategy to say, Hey, you know, we've got, um, you know, a couple family properties that I want to go to my kids and, you know, I'm expecting when I pass that they're, they're going to, you know, I only, you, you know, if you have, if you've had a piece of property in the family for forever, um, you know, that could be a significant issue if that step up in basis goes away. Um, and that's, that's another one that they were considering putting on the chopping block. So it's, they're consi- it's a lot of kind of aggressive changes mm-hmm. that are being considered. And so it'll be interesting to see what actually happens because for the most part, um, there's a lot of backlash against doing big changes like that. And so, but it is, you know, the policymakers, they have these ideas and they'll kind of keep coming back to the same places very often. Um, and it's just all politics. A lot of it is, you know, people wanting to make sure that they can continue to secure their seats and, and get reelected. And so you go after kind of the, the smallest, smallest bucket of people with, what's considered a, you know, an inordinate amount of wealth. And so those people are going to get attacked because it's, um, you know, that's just where it's easier for them to be able to get reelected. Well, um, and it's, it's only inordinate until it's not right. Like changes yeah. like that could, could literally wipe out certain families. You know, if the house oh, yeah, was bought 50 sure. years ago and now it's worth millions and millions of dollars, all of a sudden that step up could completely eradicate, you know, that inheritance mm-hmm. could change the entire you know, future for that family. Some people don't know how to, how to handle that type of money or that type of tax bill or that type of burden, you know, it's, it's just a different type of animal um, oh, yeah. than the way it's handled right now. Um, let's, I'm going to take it back a second to, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, we do have a lot of newer real estate agents or, and I'm sorry, real estate investors who, mm-hmm. and agents, you know, who are in the business who want to get involved in um, flipping properties or building a portfolio. What are some of the things that you know, I know you're probably an investor yourself. I'm sure you own some real estate. Like, what are some of the things that you wish 
people had taught, you know, you and I, uh, you know, the, the, the little girl, the little guy that's just getting started in the business when they first get into it. Um, cause I remember like being seven, eight years in the business and somebody was like, you know, you should do this. And I thought to myself, man, I wish somebody told me that when I got started, like what are some of those little <laughs> ticks, maybe a couple takeaways that, you know, are impactful when you're just getting started that you, you learn too late in the game. Yeah. I think at least around like the, you know, kind of the, what I see most people make most mistakes on when kind of they, they come to me is, uh, waiting too late to have a plan for how you're going to deal with like tax exposure or accounting and those sorts of things. Cause I think when you're so caught up in the day to day of trying to, trying to get the work done, trying to get the deals done, trying to get financing, like all of the moving pieces and all of the back and forth, um, not taking a step back at the beginning and saying, okay, what's, what's my wealth building strategy here? How do I want to execute it? And then, you know, knowing the full ramifications of the decisions you're making. And I think for a lot of people, they just kind of, okay, tax will like deal with that at the end. Um, instead of going into deals and, and realizing what the full ramifications are of things you can do. And I think a common place where a lot of people get started and I see it's like a great opportunity, like with the fix and flip thing is to take advantage of there's a, a special gain exclusion that you have on your personal residence. And so if you buy a property and you can live in it for a couple of years while you're improving it, you, when you then go to sell it, you can take advantage of this gain exclusion um, and it's up to 500,000 for a, a married filing joint couple. And so if you're just kind of dipping your toes into stuff and you, you're not sure you're going to be able to, you know, really make it on a deal and you have some time to just, you know, like kind of slowly you're maybe have a W2 job that you're doing, you're just kind of slowly starting to play with things and transition into things. That's one where you can, um, you know, really get a big tax benefit because basically you pay no capital gains tax up to 500,000 on that um, and kind of get your dip, like dip your, dip your toes in. So I find that that's a good place for people to start. But I think in general, like having a strategy when you go into it and kind of knowing the full ramifications of things is can be really helpful. And it's a step that I see a lot of people miss. Yeah. I actually love that strategy. I drive my wife nuts with that strategy. We, we've, <laughs> we move every two years for, I think we've used it four times now. And yep. uh, we, we joke because I've been in this house for four years and I say, we've been here two years too You've long. You've been too to long. Find, yeah. We need to go find somewhere to move. So uh, it's funny you brought that up. I've actually almost forgot about that strategy because I use it like by default, but uh, I don't think a lot of people understand that strategy. You use your primary residence. You can improve it, build your own house as a flip, move mm -hmm. into it right? Refinance it out, get, take the pro, but you know, mm -hmm. but when you sell it, go ahead and, 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 and take that, that gain, especially right now with the market, the way it is, take that mm -hmm. gain and it's tax-free up to 500 K as long as you're a you know, married couple. And what is it? 250 as a single, if you're, even yep. if you're single, yep. right? So, you know, you could have 250 K in profit and, and then you don't pay capital gains on that, which is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a great stepping stone for somebody is especially the way interest rates are and mortgages are right now. And I mean, you, oh, yeah. you could use an FHA mortgage to do, I mean, you're mm -hmm. really, you're into your own flip for very, very little capital. Um, and I'm pretty sure you can even do it with a 203k, right? There's no reason you can't use all these leverage tools to be able to do your own flip while you're living in the house. Yep. Yeah. And especially yeah. if you don't, um, you know, <clears throat> if you're just starting into it and so you're not looking to. Uh, cash in on depreciation yet, which that's kind of a separate, you know, more advanced thing. That's a, it's just a great way to get started with that. And um, 
you know, if you take a property with the mind of knowing that you're going to do that, you can basically do it every two years yeah. until, you know, you decide you've, you've had enough. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really easy to leverage those. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where you just, if there's a strategy there, you can yeah. keep compounding it and keep going yeah. after it. And that's, I think that's part of the like kind of mindset shift with that. I think the other thing I love about that particular strategy is you can be a quote real estate investor without being a real estate investor, right? You can have mm -hmm. a full-time job and do that. You can mm -hmm. go renovate a house, move in, live there for two years, do it again. And I think that's another thing that I don't see enough people kind of taking advantage of that opportunity, especially people who have the bandwidth to deal with that type of thing, right? That you, mm -hmm. They're already renovating their houses. They're moving in they're, They like doing that type of work. They like dealing with general contractors or, you know, why not do that? And then do it again, you know, I mean, aside the fact that it's a pain in the butt to move every two years, but, you know, we have it down to a science. I have like 500 of those rubber made containers in my basement. I just pack it all up and put it in. <laughs> and I'm out. So, <clears throat> but um, no, anyway, I, I love that. Uh, what else? Any other, any other, any other tips and tricks for, for newbies? I'd say the, the biggest tip that I have is before you get started doing things, take take another second, you know, once you've kind of figured out what your general strategy is for how you're like almost business plan for it. Um, take a minute and figure out how you're going to do accounting before you start doing all your transactions and everything. So I really recommend people to like do a little exploration and find an automated way to take care of that. So a very common one that I see people use is like QuickBooks online and the nice thing with programs like that is once you get used to, um, you know, segregating out all your business expenses into a separate bank account, doesn't necessarily have to be a business bank account, but just a separate bank account. That's all your real estate activity. And then connecting that to a tool that's going to have automated bank feeds like QuickBooks online, another popular one's called Zero, or just using an outside bookkeeper or something like that. Do that before you start doing everything so that by the time it gets to the end of the year, you're not stuck with a shoebox. You're trying to cobble into some kind of records for an accountant to deal with. Um, because then too, as you're going through the year, once you have all those automated things going, you're kind of getting profit and loss statements automated. You're able to have more insight into what's going on in your business and, and more timely information. And that's going to be more helpful for you to be able to make decisions with. Because I think I see a lot of people they lean on like how much cash is in the bank is how they're doing versus having a good sense of understanding some financial statements, understanding, you know, some more of those metrics to really know how they're doing. So I think that's a, another good, good tip to start with. And I see a lot of people just, there's so much little stuff that they're trying to handle every day. They're like, Oh, I'll just deal with it at the end of the year. I'll just deal with yeah. it at the end of the year. And that's yeah. not a good mindset to have with it. Not, not only, I mean, first of all, that's a huge tip and it's so impactful. And I coach a ton of business owners and, and I see this happen. I did this for a long time. So I'm one of them, but like, you know, so many people, especially starting out in business, they run their life out of their personal checking account. You know, yeah. even if you have a business checking account, what happens? I take the money, I put it in my business checking account when they need it. And then all, oh, my mortgage is due. Let me take it back and pay my mortgage. And then, the, oh, I have money. I'll put it back in the account. So, you know, running yeah. it back and forth and there's absolutely no differentiating, you know, uh, factor between the two accounts. You, you might as well just have one account, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so having that separation is massive, but it also creates a peace of mind that you're running a real business and the yeah. business is here and my personal yeah. is here. Um, I, I also really, really recommend that you pay yourself with like just a systematic automatic payment scale. Even if you don't believe you can just a little bit of money 
that way you start to create that process of I'm an actual, you know, employee of my own business and I'm separate from it. Right. So that mm -hmm. I can start to create that peace of mind and that gap. But, um, but you're right on. I mean, having that separation between your personal and your business life, um, there's so many different benefits aside from just the, the, the financial benefits that you mentioned and keeping yourself on track. Um, and so that you don't have to chase and figure out, you know, what did each project cost me and what was my P&L and what was my yes. actual profit? Because, you know, people run around and they go, oh, I flipped the house and I made $65,000. And then you're like, what was your actual, you know, yep. and then, yep. oh, I really made 18, you know, well, stop lying to yourself because I have mm -hmm. the, I have the books. Um, so I think that's a great, great takeaway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And too, when you have those, those kind of ready numbers, before you get to the end of the year too, you can consider like, oh, okay, I made, you know, I didn't make 65, I made 18, but what's the tax exposure on that one, right? Because yeah. is this going to be at my ordinary rates? Is this going to be at capital gains rates? Because that that's a difference, you know, that can be the difference between 15% and 40%. True. And that's a huge split uh, on what your take home is going to be. But in, unless you have timely information during the year, you know, you're not going to know how that shook out. So that's part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to switch it up a little bit. Tell me about the business a little bit. Dominion Enterprise Services. When you were building this business up, you had to have some, some obstacles, some roadblocks, some pitfalls, some challenges, right? Can you take me back to a time where you might've felt like, man, this being an entrepreneur thing, maybe I'll just, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll go find a nine to five. I, I could work for another CPA firm. I don't know if I want to do this. Uh, well, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest obstacle I found was when I was working at other CPA firms before I decided to found this firm was I kept encountering things that felt broken to me mm -hmm. and a lot of, uh, kind of the client interactions and relationships. I just, I just found a, a lot of pieces that I wanted to make better. And so when I founded this firm, a, a lot of kind of what was the obstacle and effort at the beginning was how do I, how do I engineer this thing kind of in its DNA to fix these problems and to put out, prevent fires instead of we're going to put out fires and mm. do this sustainably and have, have this be fixed because uh, a lot of people in my profession, there's a lot of people leaving my profession. And um, I think there's a statistic I read a couple of weeks ago the main body that organizes us is called the AICPA. And I think it was 75% of members were eligible for retirement last year. So there is a major deficit of people in the tax space. Um, and I just see that getting worse and worse every year. And I think part of it's just because the CPA firm model is really broken. Uh, you know, when wow. you have a lot of deliverables all due on a couple of tax deadlines during the year that just causes a lot of intense burnout. So I think the biggest obstacle for us at the beginning is definitely, you know, how do you, how do you take a business model that feels broken and fix it? Because the work that we do really does help people and it's work that's really needed. And yet the, a lot of the staff and partners, they burn out so quickly because it, I, it's almost like the same thing with medical, you know, there's just so yeah. much demand and there's not enough supply. And so people just get really burnt out unless you can establish good systems. You know, we rely a lot on technology in my practice and it's all those things and that kind of re-engineering where the, the stress points are and the pressure points are is, is what makes it work. And I tell you what, again, I don't, I don't, I can't say this enough. I don't want to get political, but you know, you're related to the healthcare space why are doctors getting burned out? It's because the insurance industry is putting more and more pressure on them and making it more and more difficult to do their job. 
And yeah. so why are CPAs getting burnout? Well, now they want to quadruple the size of the IRS and make it more and more difficult to do your job. It's like, well, it, it's a very, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's a very good analogy, right? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. how, can, how can you guys be expected to continue to do it? You're telling me 75% of people are eligible to retire. And if, if things get more and more difficult as they look like they're going to over the course of the next couple of years, well, I'm going to retire. I'm out of here, you know? So yeah. you yeah. can't expect these professionals to step up and get better and better. Um, you know, thank God for people like yourself, but you're making the, the industry more and more difficult. Um, yeah. To succeed and it's at. just, and it's just the nature of it because I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, in the U S our tax code is designed to do two things. It administers a lot of social programs and, you know, incentive <clears throat> programs to try to get people to behave a certain way. And then the secondary function of it is to collect revenue. And because it's a combination of those things, it's just really complicated because anytime the government wants to do something to incentivize people to behave a certain way, they mess with the tax code. And yet the whole compliance burden of that falls on taxpayers to handle it themselves. And especially when you have people in real estate where they've got a complex way of earning income, it just makes it even more complicated for them. Um, So I was looking at a statistic the other week that the number of pages in the tax code back in 1950 was like 10,000 pages in 1950. As of 2010, the tax code and like relevant court citations that we need, it was 2010, it was up to 70,000. So just in the, (laughs) and before 1950, I think like in 1930, it was like, you know, maybe four or 5,000, like it was just not. So you can see like the complexity is just, it just balloons over time. Um, Yeah, it's. And so how are you expected to memorize 70,000 pages of tax code? <laughs> like, like you're supposed to understand and, and sort your way through that and advise your clients on 70,000 pages of tax code, right? Yeah, no. Essentially. And it's, essentially. Yeah. And that's why we have to, re- I think it's important to rely a lot on technology in my profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a big part of it is people have certain specialties and you just kind of have to niche down into areas that are your specialty focus. And so like for us, it's, Um, It's really tax planning work and Mm -hmm. focused with a couple of like key areas, like people who are involved in real estate, because that's a very sub niche area and uh, business owners. And those are really our, that's, that's our little space uh, because it is, it's such a big, a big tax code. So, so, and and you bring up a great point because we had this, we, we briefly touched on this right before I hit the record button. What do you think a lot of real estate investors, you know, are, are missing Ellen? Because I had, listen, I have people, you know, reach out to me on a weekly basis on these type of items. Uh, You know, Mm. I love my CPA because he's a real estate investor. He owns multiple businesses. He understands and gets this, but I, I have people tell me all the time, like, I don't think my CPA gets it. I don't think they're, I don't think he or she's doing the right thing. You know, why do you think people stay with their CPA for so long and don't get the right advice or, or just, you know, paralyzed to move forward and, and ask for, for the right advice? I think a lot of people it's because there's so much confusion and frustration and almost if you have these situations, you, you kind of can't do it yourself. Mm-hmm. They just kind of get into this mode where they'll either, they'll just kind of procrastinate with it because it's such a pain to try to form a new relationship it's so hard as a non-technical person to evaluate if this technician is right or not. I think it's the same thing with like a lot of doctors too, where it's hard for you to know if you're getting the right advice, because the only way for you to actually be qualified to know if you're getting the right advice is if you were able to do it yourself. And for people that have complex transactions, 
you're not really able to do that. And so, you know, your best guess is uh, have a couple people look at it. And a lot of times what people will do is, um, you know, they'll try to, uh, you know, price shop or something like that. And it's, I think, you know, your best bet for trying to find someone that's going to be a good fit is someone who focuses on people who are like you. Um, and then I think on top of that, you can kind of get a sense for, uh, if the person is really engaged with growing their practice, if they're engaged with their local society of CPAs, if they're excited when they talk to you or they just, you know, you're kind of like, okay, well, I can fit you in. Yeah. Um, you know, those are, yeah. those are kind of like red flags for me when I talk to people I'd say like, okay, so what isn't working with your previous relationship? Because I want to know, um, you know, are you just a bad egg or are yeah. you dealing with a bad tax professional? And sure. usually the, the whistles that go off are, you know, they never have time for me. It takes them a month to get back to me. If I send them an email, I never hear back from them. Mm. I call and have a 15 minute conversation that I don't get any answers on. And then I get a bill in the mail, um, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. like kind of that, like unsatisfied feeling. Sure. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's, they just, uh, they'll just hang on because, you just don't know how to find the next person or uh, who's going to be a good fit for what you have going on. Cause it's so hard to qualify, you know, that kind of professional. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely makes sense. And I mean, you know, listen, I'm not just saying this because you're on there, but you're, you're here on the podcast, but I think that, you know, if you're a listener and you're paying attention to this, if you're not getting the proper tax advice, you obviously should be looking for somebody else to call, to talk to, to, you know, um, everything Catherine just said, you know, just interview some other people, talk to them, mm -hmm. ask them their, you know, their opinion. Um, you know, for most, I mean, th they might even review your last, uh, your last tax return you know, just mm -hmm. to see if there's some, some holes in it, right. Some, um, some gaps that they, that they might be able to, uh, to change going forward. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, I think that, uh, there's far too many people, especially as they start to build their business and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, they start out with one or two, you know, properties, next thing you know, they're up to 20 or 30 and, and their mm -hmm. accountant is just not positioned, um, to, to handle that type of investor, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's like when you had one or two properties, it's fine. I can handle that type of return. Now you're a real legit business and I'm just not a real estate investor CPA. You know, yeah. I see that happen quite a bit. Um, so I think it's really important that you find a CPA that's versed in real estate investing at, at a high level. If you're starting to grow and you know what the end game is. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people too, they, they go from that kind of beginner stage to that more intermediate stage. And the conversation quickly changes from, okay, I need to have my taxes done at the end of the year to uh, how can I actually be taking advantage of everything and making sure that we're reducing how much we pay? Cause that's the kind of work that, that we focus on in our firm is it's more um, of a proactive relationship and how can we actually engineer what you're doing to get you the best tax advantages by taking you know, taking advantage of stuff like cost segregation studies or 1031 exchanges or gifting strategies with family members and actually modifying what's going on so that you're paying less in tax and then having all the compliance work, like all the tax returns and all that stuff match up with these strategies to try to just reduce what you're paying. Yeah. And not only that, how do I make sure I do that? Um, and I stay bankable, keep my taxes yeah. low, you know, keep mm -hmm. my returns where the banks don't think, well, you, you made negative money last year, you know, yep. how can I loan you money? You know, so like people don't think about these things until it's too late. And unfortunately you file a tax return and you need a loan a year later. And they're saying what happened last year. 
right? And yep. then you have to backtrack or backpedal. So I think there's a lot of those things that, again, your CPA is almost like an insurance policy into your future when you're starting to try to grow. They need to understand the roads that you're, you're on uh, to help you get there as well. So yeah, uh, it's tons and tons of great points. Catherine, what did I forget to ask that I, that I probably should have asked you today? Uh, maybe just how to get in touch with us. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great. Let's do that. What's the best way for, for our folks to, uh, to contact you? Yeah. So, uh, best way to get updates on just different things that are going on in the tax code is, uh, if you're on LinkedIn to connect with me on LinkedIn or my company dominion. And, uh, on top of that, on our website, we post regular updates on different, uh, legislative changes, different tax saving ideas, and then from time to time, we'll post different kind of educational videos and, and those sorts of things that people tend to find useful. So those are the best ways uh, to get connected. And um, obviously, um, we're able to work with any clients, you know, in the US and we have a specialty with more of the tax planning and proactive kind of work. So uh, you can visit our website and there's a contact form if you're interested in having a second set of eyes on your situation. Fantastic. Well, uh, that was a uh, excellent interview. I think you gave our uh, our listeners a ton of advice and a ton of ideas there to uh, to move forward. Hopefully, if any of them have any um, issues with their current practice or they don't have a CPA, guys, if you don't have a CPA looking at your stuff and you're trying to get into real estate or you're in real estate right now, absolutely have somebody take a look and uh, have a conversation. Reach out to Catherine. Um, you, you know where to find her. We'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, Catherine Tindall, thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much, Joe. This was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Talk soon. Thank you.